another edition of the NBH Hour on News Talk Saga 960 AM. My name is Jason Tom, and I will be with you for the next hour for a show that not only speaks directly to the Canadian basketball community, but also the general public. Well, I hope we'll hear the stories on this show and look to support the people on it and better understand why the sport of basketball is something that so many people are so passionate about here in Canada. We're less than a week away from the return of professional basketball to Canada. With no Raptors and no Raptors 905 north of the border, it has been nine months since the Canadian Elite Basketball League wrapped up its summer series. And next week, the league will begin a season that will last about six weeks, with games happening in British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and four cities in Ontario. Last week, I had the commissioner of the CEBL, former CFLer Mike Morreale, on the program to talk about the challenges in getting the league off the ground three years ago, the challenges of playing during a pandemic, and the challenges that basketball faces just on a day-to-day basis in this country. And it's so important for this league to come back to be able to show that the sport can be played safely at all levels. On today's show... I have two Canadians that are currently getting ready for the upcoming CEBL season. Also on the show, someone who has one of the most interesting stories in Canadian basketball history. Braden Anderson, who went from homelessness in Alberta to becoming the first male Division I basketball player to become a lawyer while playing the game at the collegiate level. And now he is here to help the next generation understand how to maximize their opportunities at the post-secondary level through the game of basketball. Interestingly enough, our first guest also has a message he wants to share after transitioning from student-athlete to professional athlete, and it's a message about playing your role to perfection while seeking out knowledge that will help you through every facet of your life well after the basketball stops bouncing. Amadou Bamba of the Guelph Nighthawks of the Canadian Elite Basketball League. Amadou, you've played a professional season in Spain, and after being a student athlete for so long, how has the transition been like to a professional basketball player? Was there challenges that you faced that maybe you didn't expect? Because I just keep hearing that everything is so aligned when you're a student athlete and your time is all like broken up properly was it a weird transition for you? I would definitely say that that was one of the big things, what you just mentioned, how everything was laid out for you. I think that was the biggest, um, the biggest jump from going from a student athlete to professional, you know, when you think that, when you think of the professional level, you think that, okay, now I don't have to do any schoolwork to go along with those athletics. But what you don't realize is that you completely lose all structure that was handed to you. You know, in college, you know, you had everything laid out. You had weights at this time. You had this at this time. And at the professional level, you do have that. But then what are you going to do in all that free time that you now have? Are you are you going to, you know, waste your time doing nothing? There's no one, you know, goading you to go to the gym. No one's telling you to do anything outside of the mandatory things that are set out for you. And I think that's the biggest difference. It teaches you a lot that like you need a high level of discipline in order to play at the professional level, because if not, you may end up falling behind because now you're thinking, okay, I just have to go to this and this today. And now you're not thinking about how am I going to improve in the day? How am I going to, you know, manage my time? 
So I think that that's one of the biggest things. I think there's a certain safety net that comes with being a student athlete that not a lot of people think about. Mm. Whereas in the, at the professional level, there is no safety net. And if you fall, you will fall hard. It's a great perspective. And, and, you know, the next question I had for you was about the CEBL because now this is your first year in the CEBL. And it's, this is something that when you started in the NCAA, it didn't exist. So, you know, right, yeah. how good of an opportunity is this, especially at this point in your career and before, you know, the European season would be starting? Yeah, this is a tremendous opportunity. Um, as you can see, the CEBL is growing at such a rapid pace. There's such a high level of competition in the league. You've got, you know, former draft picks. You've got G League players. You've got so many high-level players. You've got great Canadian athletes in there. You've got you've got great American athletes in there. It's becoming now it's not so much of a Canadian league. It's starting to become more and more of an international league. It's starting to creep to that international recognition. You know, it's, it's obviously a slow and sure process. You know, you can't necessarily rush anything, but you can see the growth. And I'm really excited to be a part of that because now I have the opportunity in the summer to play against such high level competition. And it, sets me up for my next professional season you know it, it gives me a stepping stone it also helps me it gives me a gauge of where I am as a professional athlete mm-hmm. it gives me another it gives me another sense of where I'm at what I need to improve on I have another set of eyes looking at me I have more film to work with there's so many there's so many different opportunities for me to develop my game in such a positive way against such great athletes. And I'm really excited about being a part of that. Four years ago, you were a part of something else that was pretty special. Uh, and I've had a couple of players from that U19 World Cup gold medal uh, squad on this program. But looking back on that team, I remember Co- Coach Roy Rana um, gave all the players cards for, for the role that they had to play. And I think that was the most special thing about that team was everybody played their role to perfection. What did your card say? Do you remember? The card that he gave me was the beast. And basically, yeah, basically what that entailed was, you know, I, I play the sort of, I guess, intense role. I basically, you know, rebound everything you know, be an interior presence, um, make your force, make your presence be known on the court at all times. I think that that worked really well for me because honestly, I came in a little confused about what I should be, do on this team. And up until that point, and still past that point, uh, four years later, I had never received anything like that from any coach. Like, so that was very special to me. And it, it, at that moment, it became crystal clear what my role was on that team. And I think it helped me tremendously. It helped me leaps and bounds while playing on that team. And even moving forward, just sort of having that idea of this is who I am. Let's make, let's make something out of this. In your Instagram, you have, you know, your can of basketball jersey underneath your robe when you graduated at Coastal Carolina and, and yeah. you get your degree there. You're on the president's list, male student athlete of the year for excelling both academically and athletically. Um, you know, how, how did all of that and your focus on academics shape your transfer as a grad transfer to where you went next. And I guess more or less, cause that, that grad year is a free year to an extent. Most people focus on basketball, but at the same time, it sets yourself up for life after basketball, doesn't it? 
you know, there are a lot of factors that went into why I transferred to Charlotte. But, you know, talking from an academic standpoint and a professional life outside of basketball standpoint, a big reason why I graduated from Coastal Carolina as a finance major. And I wanted to go somewhere where after I was done playing basketball, I would be in a city that had a financial focus that I could, you know, advance in terms of financial opportunities, if I, in opportunities in the financial services industry. And Charlotte is one of the fastest growing cities in the country from a financial standpoint. Obviously, New York, New York City is the is the massive hub for for finance. Obviously, you have Wall Street and everything, but Charlotte is underlooked in that sense, and it's growing so rapidly, especially from a financial standpoint, that that like I being in Charlotte was a great opportunity for me after basketball. So you were a financial major and I have to ask a question up until that point or at any point was financial literacy, something that was ever taught to you as a young man coming up through the world of basketball. There wasn't much of an emphasis in really most of the years that I had been playing basketball, um, I remember we we sort of had sort of life courses at UNC Charlotte um, where we learned different life skills along along those lines. But even before that, I had never I had never received any sort of training, I guess, or anything like that about financial literacy. It's something that's extremely underlooked and. I I did have to work hard to seek that out, even outside of my finance classes, because there are certain things that you don't learn from those finance classes. A lot of the stuff that I learned in those classes had nothing to do with personal finance. And it's such an important aspect. I'm actually working uh, with this man. He's the founder and CEO of this asset management company in North Carolina. And me and him him and I are working on bringing financial literacy to college student athletes. Um, It's something that we had been talking about for about a year now. And it's something that I'm really excited about because I understand the importance of financial literacy. I've played with so many different players from so many different backgrounds and like, and I've played with, with guys who have, who are currently making a lot of money doing it. And you know, it's it's so important that that student athletes, whether they go on to play basketball at the next level or do they decide to start working full time in a career in whatever industry, it's so important to understand how to both use your money in a way that works for you and to make sure that the money isn't using you at the same time. It's it's so it's so easy to get caught up when you get a when you get your first paycheck after um, being a student athlete. It's so easy to just start spending, mm-hmm. and I think it's so important. The, the last thing I wanted to pass on because I know you're somebody about playing your role. Do you think it's lost on some of these young guys that it's okay to not be the guy on the team? and just being a guy on a winning team and then learning all these things that come with it so that when you get to your next level or your next stop, that you have a better chance of being the guy. And if you maybe aren't ever that person, there's still lots of things uh, that can enrich your life beyond 
that that kind of shine that comes with it? I think there's a sort of stigma around young people and being a role player because role in their mind doesn't imply being a star player. And I think that there's a need to get rid of the stigma around that because like you said, there are so many opportunities to use those skills that you've learned as a role player and they carry on so much further than where you might be right now. And it's sort of having that ability to look at the long game, whether it's in basketball or out of basketball. I will say that, you know, there are so many things that you learn from playing basketball that have nothing to do with how many points you score. Say, you know, for example, the time management, you know, working with teammates and developing in that way, the competitive drive that comes with, you know, being an athlete and wanting to be successful. And none of that has to do with scoring points per se. You know, it has to do with these sort of intangibles that you that you gain from the sport and that will carry you so much further than scoring 30 points will. Where you are right now is not all that you will be. So make sure that you do what you do really well rather than try to do everything at a sort of, I guess, average level. Like when you have that role, make sure you play that role at a very high level. Try to achieve perfection in that role because in some way or another, that's going to benefit you greatly in the future. Maybe in ways that you won't be able to see right now, but it will become very, very, very important for you long-term. And even short-term, you know, you're looking at just the season in general, you're playing this role at an extremely high level. And if everyone on the team is doing that, you're going to be a winner. And look, hoisting a championship feels better than scoring points a game will. And I know that from firsthand experience. I have the ring to prove it. And it's just, it feels so much better when you can say, yeah, I won the whole thing. No one's, no one's really going to be saying, okay, but how many points did you have? They're going to be saying, oh yeah, you won the whole thing. That's why we have the show. And that's why I'm glad I had you on it. And, and I'm glad that now when you take the floor with the Nighthawks this year, the CEBL, people are going to know a little bit more about you. Amadou Bamba, world champion. And now playing his first year in the CEBL. Welcome back home, man. I'm looking forward to calling your games this year. Yeah, I appreciate it. And thank you for having me on. I had a great time. Through the first few months of inviting guests onto this show, one theme has stuck out. Every Canadian that has walked their path in this basketball world want to turn around to help those that are walking it behind them. And my next guest should have the ear of every young man or woman who is looking to play the sport at the post-secondary level because he wants each and every one of them to maximize on the opportunity they have by making decisions that will benefit them for the rest of their lives. Braden Anderson, a former Division I student-athlete who returned to the court from a life-altering car accident to become a New York City lawyer. He is next on the NPH Hour here on News Talk Saga. Block number two of the MPH Hour here on News Talk Saga 960 AM. I'm your host, Jason Tom. And over the last few years, there's been a lot of talk about the NCAA and the billions of dollars that they pull in off the backs of student-athletes in the two big sports that fund so many high-level programs in America, football and basketball. 
It's a powder keg issue, and the fuse is shorter than ever. Most believe these student-athletes should lose the title of amateur and not only be paid, but also be able to make money off of their likeness. There are now more options than ever for the most elite players to forego the NCAA altogether and still make their NBA dream come true. But even if the draft rules change to once again allow high schoolers to go directly to the NBA, there are very few players good enough to successfully make that jump and succeed in the long term. So why not focus on what these student athletes are getting? A free education, an increased network, and unique life experiences, something that not many players are focused on because they believe every ounce of their energy should be put into the game itself. That's what Braden Anderson did at a young age. From a small town in Alberta, he chased his basketball dreams to different American high schools because back then, that was how it was done. There was no real pathway here at home. And you know what? It worked. Anderson earned a scholarship to the University of Kansas, a powerhouse program coached by Bill Self. But even after he had started summer classes and scored a huge number on the SATs, he was ruled academically ineligible. Because the NCAA did not accept some of the credits he received at a school they said simply didn't exist. It happens more than you think. And that could have been the end of his story. But two other D1 schools later, Braden became the poster boy for NCAA student-athletes and the value they do receive in the form of a scholarship. It's something that doesn't happen enough, and this New York City lawyer wants to change that with the clarity he now has about the process he lived through. And no one can argue that he worked the system to perfection. Braden Anderson, Okotoks, Alberta native, former NCAA student athlete, law school graduate, currently a lawyer specializing in financial regulatory law. Braden, tell us about the law firm where you work because pretty heavy hitting group, I think, down there, right? Yeah, um, so it's, it's Sidley Austin. Uh, it's a Chicago-based law firm. Um, I believe it's uh, around like the fifth or sixth largest in the U.S. Um, we have you know over 20 offices across the globe. Uh, I work in the New York office, uh, which is pretty decent size. I think we have like five or six hundred lawyers. Um, uh, as you correctly noted, doing financial regulatory law, um, you know, mainly representing banks and financial institutions. The firm's claim to fame. Most people know Sidley because that's where Barack and Michelle Obama met. They actually, mm-hmm. Michelle was Barack's boss in the, in the Chicago office. Uh, and that's, that's how they met was um, Barack was like an intern. He was a summer associate. And Michelle was like a second or third year and was assigned as his mentor. Um, and that's actually how they met. So that is a great story. <laughs> to start it off, yeah. uh, to start off this interview. And you're really an example of the true value of an athletic scholarship and what can come from someone who keeps academics at the forefront. Just straight up, what's your advice to, to these to these players that have the skill to have the opportunity to go D1, but maybe aren't thinking about what the institutions offer academically and maybe making decisions strictly uh, off a of basketball sense? Well, you, you have to understand the game you're playing. There's not a lot of transparency or, or understanding at all from the players 
you, you have great, great players. They're super naive and they just eat up whatever these programs feed to them, right? And they're feeding the same thing to every single recruit. There is a business of basketball. Bottom line, it's a business. And so when you're approaching this, you need to think about where you fit into this business. Are you Andrew Wiggins? Are you Carl Anthony Towns? Are you Zion Williamson? Or like, who are you? What is, what is your path? Because those are one in a million type of players. And so if you're not that player, right? And if the, if the coaching staff doesn't believe you are that player, then you need to make sure that you're making really strategic decisions throughout your journey to just make sure that you're taking advantage of what you're being given and looking out for number one yourself, right? Like you have to do that because no one's going to do that for you. And student athletes, bottom line, are paid with education. I don't think anyone's made more money, derived more value from playing college basketball than I have. I'll just throw it out there. I don't think so. If you add up, right? Because if you graduate early, Mm -hmm. right? I graduated in three years and then I got two years of law school paid for. This is like 220 thousand dollars worth of value just in law school right and then you add up the undergrad it's getting pretty close to 120 or something that depends you know how you calculate living expenses but then you just take the sat you know the tuition and stuff and you put that to the side living expenses the real cost of education put it aside now you can do another analysis right finance bros across the world are thinking right what's your model you know how are you going to do this right well, I think you, you take future earnings, right? You can do that calculation. Someone who had a 2.0 in college has a different value of their education than someone who had a 3.6. Yeah. It's just different. Yeah. It's going to open up different types of opportunities to you. It, it, it's going to mean different things in terms of your earning power. And I think examples like mine, frankly, and I think examples like Julian's, are Julian Clark, brain surgeon, right? Like these are examples of, listen, if you take my, my career salary earnings and you add up that number and you, and you add up Julian Clark's, you know, complete salary, you know, career earning number, it's yeah. a big number and it's a bigger number than most players who go play pro. Most people who make it to the NBA, bigger number than they'll ever take home. And so it's just something to think about. There's other ways to be a millionaire, right? There's, and so just, I think having more options for these athletes, it's got to make you feel better. Because I think people feel really pressured to, I got to make it to the NBA. I got to make, or, or make it to the best league overseas, or I can't buy my mom a house, or I can't feed myself or I'm a failure. And it's just not true. When did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? And, and, and you know, was that before Seton Hall transferring there? And, and, and like, I, th- I think I remember talking to you at that time, that was went into the decision making there. I mean, your, your recruiting visit was, you know, show me what I'm going to be doing academically. For me, I, I think there was a shift, obviously, when I broke my neck, you know, mm-hmm. in, in Fresno State, sad story, drunk driver, break your neck, I always cared about academics. 
Um, but I think when something like that happens to you, like you're in a car, you're with your buddies, everything's fine. You know, I just transferred from Kansas. I was about to play in my first full season. I was ready to go. I had just got back from the Team Canada pre-Olympic team. I was just working out with Tristan and Steve Nash and, and everybody. And, you know, I was ready to go. You know, I just spent a month and a half with Steve Nash. You know, I was so excited to I play my that, first yeah. full season. I thought I was doing one year and I was out of there. And so, you know, it, I still cared about school, but like something like that happens to you and it, it just changes your perspective overnight. You know, um, I had that like dramatic, ridiculous conversation that like, you know, I, when I think about it, it's like, it's Friday night lights. It's when Booby Miles asked the doc, he's like, Hey doc, am I going to be able to play again? And it's this like ridiculously, you know, dramatic scene and, and you see it in movie and movie and movie and TV show. And like that happened to me in real life. Wow. I asked my surgeon, Gene Carragy, who was a tremendous surgeon at, up at Stanford. He did Peyton Manning's yep. neck surgery. And I asked him that question. I was like, doc, like, am I going to be able to play? And he was like, I don't know, man. You know, and that, and like, you could tell he was being genuine and he was just like, I just don't know. This is like, I really don't. And that put enough fear into my heart that I was like, man, like, this is, it's crazy that you can sacrifice everything and, and put 20 years into a game and, um, and you can lose it all, right? You can lose it all because of one, you know, 20 minute car ride. And um, luckily, obviously, I was able to come back and play again. But I think I, I was more careful um, in a lot of ways. I think mentally it affected me. Mm. Um, you know, when you know that you have that, that insecurity at, at that level, I, I think it, it didn't render me able to be as reckless on the boards, for example, as I used yeah. to be. And to just, I, I used to be recklessly aggressive with my body. And I think, you just, even if it's not conscious, yes, you just kind of don't play that same way, you know? You were ruled academically ineligible at Kansas, and you'd scored a 1450 on the SAT, already had A's in summer classes. But, you know, when we've talked about this before, what I want to ask you is, what would your advice be to players coming up now who still like they do their best in class, but they leave that portion. They leave the NCAA eligibility portion to a coach or to someone else. How involved should a player be even in, in something like grade nine, grade 10, if they know that they want to get to that level. Again, it comes down to perspective of like what, what you're trying to do. I think, um, for most players, the academic piece is like your ticket. That is your ticket. It, that is the big opportunity for you. And, and, and until the rules change and until things change dramatically with this amateur system, this is your compensation. Um, and so you have to treat it that way. I have to be honest, right? Like there are some players who are so good that we can't take that patriarchal view of trying to control and manage and, yeah. and, and try to micromanage people. It's like, no, 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 that's a professional athlete right there. Mm -hmm. And, and if you're that good, you know, it, it, it's, 
it's really not even our place as a society to say, oh, well, you know, you got to go to class. And that's why the fiction of the, the amateur system is an issue. It, it, it's not an issue for everybody. It's not an issue for the 99%. It's an issue for the 1%. Because the 1% are the ones driving the majority of revenue. Yeah, yeah. They're the ones single-handedly winning ball games and, and filling the seats and, and, and driving ridiculous viewership and, and creating millions and billions of dollars. The ranking system shouldn't be Kansas, Kentucky, Duke, although Rock Chalk, Jayhawk for life, um, still have a lot of love for, for that program. Um, it should probably be Harvard, Yale, Columbia. Penn, right? It probably, I'm just telling you, if you're doing the analysis on, on bang for your buck and, and, and kind of the value of your efforts, that's, that's highly valuable, man. <laughs> that degree is highly valuable. You're going to be cashing at minimum six-figure checks, even if you stumble out of that place with the degree. Yeah. Stumble. You're, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and people just don't think about that. And they don't know that, you know, that most of my friends playing overseas, they don't know this number. It's a sad number. People are, and I don't, I'm, I'm scared to share it, to, 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 to discourage people. I'm not even going to share it. it. It's not a high number. Most people playing overseas are making a, a low amount of money, a, an amount lower than you would make with a great college degree and a good job. It, you know, and I just think people need to consider that, that it's okay, right? Loving the game is one thing. We yeah, all love yeah. the game, but you don't need to feel that pressure. There's a lot of pressure that you can feel that my teammates had, that people I was playing with had that it was like, if they didn't make this thing happen, yeah. that it was like their life was over yeah. and there was nothing else for them in the world. And it's preyed on that desperation and that, you know, the fact that you need them and you can make these players run through walls for you. And, and I just think more people need to know, you know, there's a bigger picture here and, and there are other options for me. The last thing I wanted to hit on was, was you mentioned there, um, you know, pressure and, and, you know, student athlete, law school, overcoming a catastrophic injury, all of that. How did it get you ready discipline wise, perspective wise to succeed now in everything you are dealing with? Like it must be tough to rattle you at this point. You know, it's tough. I, it's, I think there's like rare moments where it's like, okay, I can't, that one, I can't weasel around and like try to be humble or something. Um, yeah, uh, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll phrase it this way because I want to motivate other student athletes hearing this. Like, if, like, for me, for example, I was homeless at 12. And this isn't, by the way, like, I'm not unique. I don't think I'm special. I've played with a lot of people who had just as hard lives as me and, and been through everything I've been through and more, right? But just to put it in perspective, I was homeless at 12 lived on people's couches, had one opportunity with Bro Russell to go live in an, apart in an apartment building with 16 boys and duke it out and, you know, scratched and clawed and moved away from my whole family at 15 and, and, and lived at these little basketball schools along the way and scratched and clawed, was never a person who was supposed to go to college, never a person who was supposed to graduate high school. I worked regular jobs when I was 14. I washed dishes, I did landscaping. I, I did stone masonry. I, I did everything I could just to eat. 
Um, and being having gone through all that, having gone through running 10 miles every morning at 5 a.m., spending seven, eight hours a day in the gym, studying every hour in between, getting three, four hours of sleep, trying to study and make it happen, burning on, on both ends, competing on the court, competing in the weight room, competing in the classroom. You really can't rattle that person, period. Forget me. You just can't rattle that person. And I think the bigger thing is when you compare that person with the, the person in the professional world, and it's no knock on them. Because of course, I want my children to have a much easier life than me. That's what I'm working so hard for. But I'm competing against people who have had a very easy life. And them to them, adversity and challenge is just not what that is to me. And I'm not knocking them, yeah. right? But it's just a much different deal. So, you know, when we talk about working in big law and working in finance and working at these big firms and that that's hard and working in New York is hard. I can tell you that for people like us, and I'm talking to all these student athletes out here who've been through it. It's not hard for us. We're built for this. We're built for this. I'm serious. And it's, and it's, it's not possible to compete with us. It's just not. If you get an education if you get that experience and that opportunity to try to compete with that kid who went to private school all the way, never had to really work hard for much, had every opportunity, it's just impossible to compete with you. It's just not possible. Don't really know what else to say to that. Braden Anderson, thank you for coming on the MPH hour and spitting some truth and, uh, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to see, uh, see you in a courtroom. Thank goodness. Um, but, uh, I appreciate you coming on, man. And, and sharing that to the next generation, just an amazing story, possibly the most interesting man coming from Canadian basketball that no longer plays the sport, but I'm sure you're killing it in those lawyer pickup games. Thanks so much, man. Really appreciate it, Jason. And, um, you know, Best of luck to everybody out there. I, I want folks to know back home, just if there's anybody who has questions, please reach out to me. This is, it's, it's one of my purposes now. Just please reach out. Like, just, just let me know if you have questions, need advice. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk to you. I didn't get big time on anybody. You heard the name Julian Clark mentioned in that interview. And if you missed my interview with Dr. Clark, who's on the home stretch to becoming a neurosurgeon, please check it out on our North Pole Hoops YouTube channel. It's worth a listen to hear these two young men speak so passionately about this topic. NCAA scholarships are something that is still pretty new to the basketball world here in Canada, and the education of how to maximize all that comes with it is something that is still lacking, not only just here in Canada. U.S. student-athletes face the same problem, and it's usually because they're thinking short-term and not playing the long game. Next on the MPH Hour, we head back to the CEBL and talk to a Montreal native who is back in the league for a second season while looking forward to next year when his home city will see a CEBL franchise land in its community. Kemi Osei of the Saskatchewan Rattlers is up next on the MPH Hour here on News Talk Saga. The MPH Hour is back for the home stretch on News Talk Saga 960 AM. I'm your host, Jason Tom, and I'm also... One of the day one broadcasters for the Canadian Elite Basketball League. They return to the floor in just a few days and once again make history for basketball in Canada. The last time they did that was last summer 
when the CEBL played safely through the pandemic in a tournament that was a battle for a number of reasons. The Saskatchewan Rattlers struggled with injuries those few weeks and finished last in the league, but they had a couple of standout performers, including my next guest, Kemi Osei, who has brought the same mentality from high school to the NCAA to the pro ranks, and it all comes from his roots, born in a working-class neighborhood in the basketball hotbed of Montreal. Kemi Osei of the Saskatchewan Rattlers of the CEBL and one of the standout players for that squad and really the whole league last season at the Summer Series. It was such a short tournament during a pandemic. You guys were traveling in. Uh, you know, a lot. everyone faced their own challenges. But, but how were you able to focus and play so well? I mean, you were one of the top three-point shooters in the entire tournament. You really stood out. Was it, is it because of your upbringing? It's because of everything you went through that you were able to kind of stay laser focused and block out all that outside stuff. Um, you said it, my upbringings, man, I'm from, um, from, um, Park X, uh, where you gotta be mentally tough to, to, to be successful, to do everything. And, um, uh, that's, a, I came from a program that's run by my brother Nelson. Um, if you're going to work or play for him, you gotta be tough mentally. You gotta have that, like, dog mentality and I think that's that's most of the game I think basketball and like just any other sports is more mental it's, it's it's more mental than anything else yeah I mean you mentioned Park X and you know calling some games last year I saw you saw you throw up the X over top of your head after a couple <laughs> of threes so just you know why don't you just tell the people who don't know and who haven't been there you know what makes that place so special and why do you like to represent it every time you get on the floor I'm Park X, man. It's a small neighborhood, man. Small neighborhood, a diverse one. Um, people with different um, cultures, um, a lot of Africans, Haitians, Italians, Greeks. Um, actually, one of my favorite restaurants is a Greek restaurant. It's called Tripoli. Mm-hmm. Um, I go there often, man. I got you during quarantine. I was ordering there a lot. Um, so, you know, it's just like that vibe that you have. I feel like everybody's together in that community. Um we're one of the oldest families in the neighborhood. My parents got the house, I think, in the late 80s. So we've been there since then. So everybody knows us. We've been in that same house. So everybody knows that that's our house in the neighborhood. Um, started playing ball there. That's where I learned all my skills from my brothers. Um, I got three brothers, and all three of them helped me throughout my career. My sisters, too, of course, my parents. Um, you know, so coming from that neighborhood, and my parents actually were successful in that neighborhood. They were able to buy a house in there. Um, I got my work ethic from them, and then that's how I started basketball. And I just used that work ethic that was instilled in me as a young as a young kid, and I just put that on the court, and the good results came out of that. You the youngest in the family as well? Yeah, it's six of us, and I'm the youngest one. Yeah. So tell me about that, man, because not only part like you got to bring that on the floor with you as well. Yeah. Like you don't, <laughs> man, you know, you, time, you've seen man, it all, I'm, right? I think being the youngest one, that's that that's the benefits of it. Um, you get to see um, and you get to pick and choose what you want from everybody. And I think that's why the youngest always end up being the best. <laughs> and I, I use just... that all the time, man. I hear you, right? <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I'm the youngest one. Um, tough love, too, yeah. especially from my, my parents, my, my siblings. My parents were a little cooler with me. I guess they didn't have energy for the last one, but <laughs> my siblings been tough on me, man. But it's all love. Like I know they'll they'll run through a brick wall for me. They'll give me anything I need. 
That's awesome. And, and, you know, the CBL has announced that Montreal will have a team next year, you know, considering what the league's about and what you've seen, how excited are you for the community that the kids there will now be able to have a pro team to kind of see and feel and touch and kind of say, okay, you know, I, I can maybe play for them one day, you know, how excited are you for the city to kind of see the league come in there? Very, I'm very excited. Um, it's a league that I'm actually playing in. So I think that even brings more excitement to it. Um, we had other pro teams. We had the Ma- the Matrix, Matrix. Um, I think we had some even but before that. It didn't work out. But I have a good feeling about the CBL team. Um, I think um, it's a really good league. Um, they're professional. Just last year from what they pulled in that bubble, once they did that, I said, okay, that's a legit league, man. And I think, I think they're, they're, they're in Montreal is like, for me, I'm not, I mean, it's the best city in Canada to me. You see me repping. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I think it's going to attract a lot of people. Uh, a lot of kids are off during the school year. A lot of kids play basketball there. Like the basketball community is big there. Uh, I think, I think this, that, that stadium is going to be packed. I, I really have a good feeling about it. Uh, any ideas for the team name? They're doing a little competition now. Have you put any thought into that yourself? I don't know, man. Dude, they, they, they shouldn't ask me. I'm going to be biased. I might throw park X in there. I was about to <laughs> say, the Knights, right? <laughs> Go on the Knights. So, so I don't think they'll ask me, but I, I don't know, man. I, th- I just think it's, it's a good thing for, for, for us to have a team in the CBL, the Canadian League, that's so competitive. And I, th- I think it'll be well represented out of Montreal. Last question. A uh, lot of players coming out of Montreal uh, and a lot from your area, right? I mean, from, from yeah. a particular area. And, you know, uh, Lugens Dort, for example, is a guy like, you know, I saw a lot of his game in you in the summer series last <laughs> year, right? And, and I, I just got to ask, like, how much pride do you take in the city, not only with the skill that's coming out, but the way everybody coming out of Montreal plays? Um, I, I take pride into that because I feel like um, from that program from Park X, my group was the first one that started like sending people to the States. Um, and my brother's program, I'm the first one that made it to D1. So I really, when I see that, it really makes me happy. And I always want the next generation to be better than me. Yeah, I want like that. And that, I think that, that's the way to see it. And that's the way to go about it. So seeing a guy like Lou going to the league, that makes me happy. I'm close with Lou. Um, it's not like I'm like, oh, I want you to do good, but not better. No, nah, nah, I want you to be an all-star one day. I want you to become, you know what I'm saying? Yep. And I feel because it started with my group, um, you know, and we passed that down. Um, I think that, that means a lot. And then we started with that style of play that my brother and the program instilled in us. Um, and you can see like it's going down and everybody that comes from there, they're known for hardworking players with skills too, but we're, we're known as dogs. And then I feel, I take pride in that. And then I think um, once you have that mentality, I mean, you can only be, be successful. Shout out Nelson Osei, shout out Park X Knights and, and yeah. thank you, Kemi Osei for, for coming on the MPH hour. And I'm looking forward to calling more of your games this year for the Saskatchewan Rattlers and the CEBL. Appreciate that, Jason. Jason, um, Thanks for having me, too. Um, And it's a pleasure, man. Unique perspectives are the spice of life, and the basketball community is full of different viewpoints. And when we bring them all together on this show, the sport and the country itself is the big winner. You can see the full league schedule for the return of basketball on CEBL.ca. All games are live streamed for free on their new media service on the CBC Gem app. And some games are airing nationally on the CBC as well. 
For listeners of this station, you'll be able to hear a game each week live coming from your radio dial. More information on that will come out in the next week, so please keep your eye out. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, our focus will turn to the Canadian national teams as the women's senior national team will be preparing for the Olympics, while the men's senior national team will be getting ready to try to qualify for the Games with a tournament at the end of the month in Victoria. We also have the U19s getting together. Basketball is revving back up here in Canada, and it's about time. This has been the NPH Hour here on News Talk Saga, 960 AM.